All right, all right. Hey, welcome again to Rockbridge. My name is Matt. I want to welcome you whichever campus, whichever location that you have joined us in. We're glad that you're here. I want to wish everybody as we head into the week of the 4th of July, I want to wish you a happy 4th of July. And as we continue to always just pray for our, our country, pray for everything going on, and as the Bible commands us to pray for our leaders. Also, just want to remind you in light of that, uh, no campus will have first Wednesday in July, and the Dalton campus will not have Rockbridge PM uh, during the week of the 4th of July, but definitely have a great 4th, and then uh, our normal kind of schedule will resume after that. So we've got uh, like two more weeks of this series called Road Trip, and then here's where we're going next. We're going to get together and go through some of the book of Proverbs. We're going to give you a reading plan. Proverbs is one of the easiest books of the Bible to read because there's 31 chapters, so you can literally read a chapter a day, take you about three to ten minutes on that, and uh, read a book of the Bible in one month. It's fascinating. So we're going to set everybody up for that, go through that together, and then it'll be time to kind of get school back started, which is crazy uh, for a lot of us. So today, though, let me say this as we get into road trip, is going to be a little different. So if you're a normal Rockbridge person or a new person, this is going to be a little bit uh, out of the routine the way we attack this because We've been going through parts of the Bible of people who've been on trips with God or trips in their lives, and we said, hey, we're all kind of on a road trip. And today, we're going to kind of intersect a couple of different road trips. We're going to talk, in light of it being the week of the 4th of July, we're going to talk about something that's like, that happens in America like every two and a half years, and, then it, and it kind of becomes the national pastime. And, and see where it intersects our, our lives today. But what we're going to talk about is the road to the White House for just a minute. And is it not amazing that we're about a year and a half or so away, and uh, we started debates actually this past week for, uh, for the White House, and here's the deal. I, here's what I've realized. Everybody, virtually everybody you bump into has an opinion about this subject, politics, the state of the country, uh, the status of America, who should win, who should lose, oh my goodness, what if they win, oh my goodness, what, what if they lose, and, and, what if they, and, and so we in the church kind of get put in that equation, and, and we start asking the question, well, uh, what's our relationship with this? Or we start asking the question like, hey, I admit our country has a lot of problems. I admit there's a lot of issues. And we start asking, well, is there anything I can do or anything we can do? And, and, and we're tempted to believe that the full solution resides here. And, and so when we ask this question, what can I do? What can we do? What we really mean is this, and here's where it's devolved, you know, gone backwards a little bit. Most people would say the problem is with another group of people. Like the problem with America is the liberals, or the problem with America is the Republicans, or, or the problem with America is the people who believe opposite me on this issue. And so what happens is when we ask this question, what can I do, what can we do? The answer becomes, well, it's to get the right people in power. And so here's what we do. Well, we pray for the people in power, and we should. We support and we criticize sometimes the people in power. And then we want to vote for the right people to be in power. And we should vote and, and be engaged. And then sometimes we grow disillusioned with the people in power. And that's just sort of, you, you know, we sort of all fall right there. When we ask this question, what can I do? What should we do? And what's our response? It's all about who gets in power, who doesn't get in power, and how we support that or how we oppose that or how we get involved or how we get disgusted with that whole process. Let's close in prayer and go home. No, I'm just kidding. But the Constitution of the United States begins with we the people. 
not we the people in power. I'll say that again. The Constitution of the United States begins with we the people, not we the people in power. And that is where the church has a unique and amazing opportunity and is filled with amazing potential. Not only, not only to bless and to help our country and all the issues that we face, but to bring glory to God. If we go back to the first century when Christians were not anywhere, anywhere near close to a place of political power. Now, there were some politicians, and we see this in the book of Romans, who became Christians. And let me say this as an aside. We need Christians in politics. It's like we need Christians in the military, in the police, in, in public education, just like we need Christian business people. And we'll talk more what it means to be a Christian politician, a Christian business person, Christian mom, Christian dad, whatever, in just a minute. So, so we need all that. But, but, but when Christians had, couldn't really have any power, and it was a dictatorship or the empire of Rome, I wanted us to look at sort of what Christians did, what the people, the Christian people did. One early Christian in the second century said, this is how they were described by the Romans. See how they love one another. There was something noticeable about how Christians lived and treated one another, about how Christians loved one another. And it was noticed by the Roman people who by and large at this point in history were not Christians. So, so imagine all the people that you know, maybe feel like today that aren't Christians and all the people today that, don't, that seemingly are hostile to Christianity, could they say that about us? Just imagine that. Well, let's fast forward to the 4th century, and a Roman emperor named Julian was kind of frustrated because he'd try, they'd been trying to kind of clamp down and prevent the spread of Christianity, and he realized Christianity was just gaining, gaining steam, gaining steam. And here's what he said. Now, they called Christians back then atheism because the true religion was to worship him. The emperor. So anybody that didn't worship him was kind of didn't was a non-Christian or a non-believer. But atheism, which for him meant the Christians, has been specially advanced. So it's grown, it's multiplied through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew, he means Jewish Christian, who is a beggar, and that the godless Galileans, that would be Gentiles who became Christians, care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. They care for the Roman poor. They care for non-Christian poor. While those who belong to us, our own Roman citizens, he says, look in vain for the help that we should be rendering to them. I'll ask it again. Could a non-Christian politician say that about Christians in America today? Could people who want nothing to do with Christianity say, well, they love us more than we love ourselves? That's what's going on from the first century when Jesus was resurrected 300 years later. That's what's happening with Christianity so let's fast forward to the 1700s and talk about when America was founded. So in 1787, our founding fathers got together to write what became that We the People document, the Constitution. And Benjamin Franklin, who was instrumental in the development of that document and as a founding father of our nation, he walks outside, 1787, outside in Philadelphia after they've decided to form a republic, to, write, to draft and ratify the Constitution, 
And a lady named Mrs. Powell walks up to him and has an aggressive conversation with him. And she, he, she looks at him and says, well, Mr. Franklin, what is it? Do we have a monarchy or a republic? Because there was some movement to just make a king and, and be, do what would been done to them by Great Britain and, and just to become a monarchy with a king and a queen. And here's his reply. He says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Now, here's what he meant by that. He meant that it takes a special kind of you, a special kind of us, to be a democratic republic, to be a self-governed we the people. And ben, Benjamin Franklin loved virtue. And he realized, and other founding fathers did too. You know, I can quote James Madison. I can quote George Washington in his first inaugural address. All who recognized the American experiment, the American form of government hinged upon us having a citizenry, a citizenship, a group of people who had the character to self-govern, who had the character to live under a republic versus some kind of dictatorship. Benjamin Franklin was a big fan of a guy that maybe some of you have heard of. And, and even though Benjamin Franklin was not a Christian, he was a big fan of a man named George Whitfield. If you live in the Dalton area, your county is named after George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a British man who traveled to the colonies in the 1700s, spent about eight years in America. In the course of his lifetime, he became a Christian when he was 20, started preaching when he was 24, died about 30, 31 years later. He preached a thousand times per year for 30 years. That's three sermons a day. I do one a week and I'm, you know, tapped out, right? He preached a thousand times a year, counting like devotionals and full-fledged sermons, a thousand times a year. It's, it's believed that at the time of the revolution, 80% of the colonists heard his sermons. 80%. And you know what he preached about? His main message was Jesus' message out of John 3. You must be born again. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And Benjamin Franklin wanted nothing to do with Jesus but Benjamin Franklin would listen to this man's sermons. Benjamin Franklin became his publisher because Benjamin Franklin saw that the people who were born again, that God used through Whitfield's sermons to meet Jesus, become Christ followers, be filled with the Holy Spirit, these people became virtuous citizens. These people became the kind of people who could keep the republic. And so Benjamin Franklin loved Whitfield and was just excited about Whitfield. And that's in the 1700s. Go 50 years after, 50 years after the Constitution and after we become our own nation, France sees what's going on in America. And they send a guy named Alex de Tocqueville, and de to they said, go over there and see what's going on in American prisons and penitentiaries, because they're doing something, and maybe we can learn from it. Well, he comes over for that purpose, and he discovers something else. And, and years later, someone's writing kind of what his observations were, and, and here's sort of a, a summation, a paraphrase of some of the things that de, Toc de, to de Tocqueville found. And here's what he said. Not until I went into the churches of America the churches of America, and heard her pulpits, a pulpit's where the preacher preaches from, right? Aflame with righteousness, did I understand the secret of her, America's genius and power. What's being done in the church 
is resulting in the beauty, the genius of America. And he says this, America is great because she is good. And if she ever ceases to be good, she will cease to be great. Now, what's the beautiful thing from the first century where we've got <coughs> Tertullian, the fourth century where the Roman Emperor Julian, the 1700s, Whitfield and Franklin, the 1800s, the Tocqueville, commenting that Christians, listen, true Christians are, are a type of person that make a difference in a society, that true Christians are, are, are like salt and light, that true Christians make an impact, whether they're in power, quote-unquote politically, like in the 1700s, or not in power, like the first three centuries of Rome. So if we put all this together, I'll go back to my original question, what can we the people do for the glory of God first and foremost and for the good of other people? What can we the people do What's our calling as a church for the glory of God first and foremost? Our citizenship is in heaven and we're kingdom citizens over being American citizens. But what can, what can, the people, what can we the people do? And, and so I'm just going to share with you a few things that I think are instrumental for Rockbridge Community Church just to be faithful, a faithful church. But also I think we need to be faithful in our time and place and want God's will for our nation and want God's will for our neighbors and want God's will for our cities and want God's will, will for our communities. Just like Nehemiah was brokenhearted when he found out his hometown was in ruins, we're brokenhearted over things in our country, things in our cities, things in our neighborhoods. And we need to see our history tells us that we can do something about it and we're called to do something about it because Christians are a type of people who can quote unquote keep the republic. Christians are a type of people who can make their enemies say, I don't like them, but they outlove us. So let's run through it. The first thing, what can we the people do is this. I think we need to go back and understand Jesus's vision. Jesus's vision. And, and let me say this, Jesus' vision is not to just take some people to heaven and have some people miss hell. That's not his vision. In fact, when Jesus shows up on the scene of history, he preaches vision. He has nothing, doesn't say anything about you know, heaven or hell. Here's what he preaches. His first sermon, first words out of his mouth from the Gospel of Matthew. This is his beginning sermon. Repent, which is change. Become a different kind of person, which is what Benjamin Franklin saw in the people who heard Whitfield's sermons. They became different people, good citizens, good Christians who made good citizens. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And how what he means is he's come near. He's arrived on history. He's the king, and he's bringing a kingdom. So Jesus' vision is to establish a new order, a new kingdom. Now, there's other kingdoms. There's the kingdom of self, which is where some of us live most often. There's the kingdom of the nation state, whether that's Russia or China or America. There's the kingdom of money. There's the kingdom of sex. There's the kingdom of power. There's the kingdom of greed. There's the kingdom of pride. There's the kingdom of fear. All of us are living in a kingdom. And Jesus says, repent because my kingdom, I'm the king, has come near. And he believed this to be the best news anybody could ever hear. Imagine you live out in the, in the wilderness or something and you've never heard of running water or electricity and someone shows up and says, hey, repent, electricity is here. That means quit running uh, just on candles, you got electricity, repent. 
Imagine someone shows up and says, hey, repent, Wi-Fi and high-speed internet is here, so get off your dial-up and get off your old-school modem, right? I mean, that's what he's talking about. He said, this is the greatest news ever. And then at the end of his life, so this, or the end of his earthly life, this is his first sermon. Here's his last sermon. Same theme. Listen, this, is what, this was like when we started Rockbridge almost 17 years ago, this was the verse we studied the most. Verse says we studied the most. Jesus came near to his disciples, his followers, and he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go back to that picture I showed you of the White House. Jesus is like, I'm already in power. He's, God's already in power. So he says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. He says, go. Here's our road trip. Go as you are going. This doesn't mean you have to cross an ocean. This means as you go to work, as you go to school, as you go home, as you go to your neighborhood, as you go to your your small group, as you go to church. Go, therefore, and make disciples. A disciple is a student of Jesus. That's all it is. Jesus' vision is that when he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near, is that basically we are enrolling in a school to learn how to start living differently in the kingdom of heaven, in his kingdom, as we live out our lives on earth. Go back to what made Benjamin Franklin so excited about Whitfield's converts is what? They enrolled in the school of Jesus, and they started living under the authority of Jesus as they were colonists and as they eventually became citizens of the United States of America. And Franklin said, those kind of people can keep the republic. So just connecting dots. So he said, make students of all nations. That's ethnos. That's not a nation like China or Spain or Mexico or the United States. That's ethnic groups. That's like Caucasians or Russians or Slovakians or Hispanics or African Americans. That's an ethnic group. So that's, for us, we say all walks of life. That's Jesus' vision. Jesus' vision never to have a segregated church. We did that. Jesus' vision is that all people could be part of his family, of all the nations. And he says this, and I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing, including, identifying them with God. They're incorporated into the presence of God. Teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So, Teaching them to obey. It's not teaching for information. Listen, listen. A lot of churches, a lot of people believe it's all about, I just got information today. Jesus says it's information that leads to application. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. That's what made Benjamin Franklin so excited. People that responded to to Whitfield's preaching and became Christ followers and enrolled in the school of being a student of Jesus, they began to live differently as they were taught to obey the commands of Jesus and they made good citizens because they were not under the authority of the president or the constitution. Ultimately, they were ultimately under the authority of King Jesus. And then he says, and remember, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So here's Jesus' vision as best I can describe it. A new kingdom, which we talked about. It's his kingdom, not ours. It's not the kingdom of the United States. It's not the kingdom of the West. It's not the kingdom of my ethnicity. It's the kingdom of Jesus. So it's a new kingdom filled with and run by, under his authority, a new type of, a new person. That when people become a Christian, we think becoming a Christian is I get a new eternal address. God says, no, when you become a Christian, you get a new Lord, a new heart, and you're part of a new family and a new kingdom. So a a kingdom filled with and run by new people. So listen, here it is in Scripture. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. 
So we have a new kingdom filled with new people who are becoming more Christ-like. We are enrolling in the school of, I want to be like Jesus. What would, what, if Jesus had your marriage, how would he do your marriage? That's what it means to learn from Jesus. If Jesus ran your business, worked in your job, lived in your neighborhood, how would he do that? And you learn to do that in that situation. So, so the question is, if Jesus were the president, if I'm a Christian politician running for office, how would Jesus assume my office? That, that's really what it means to be a student of Jesus. How would Jesus live your life if he lived your life in your place? And when we give him the steering wheel of our life, we're like, Jesus, I want to learn how to do it your way. I want to learn how to do it under your authority. So, so it begs the question, if I say I'm a Christian but look nothing like Jesus, am I really a Christian? Because Romans 8, 29 says it this way, God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. That's character. So that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Ephesians 4 says it this way. So you've heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him. So throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Indeed, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. What Benjamin Franklin saw was happening as Whitfield preached to over 80% of the colonists and why they took a risk to form a republic is because they had enough citizens who were living a different kind of life and what we would say a righteous and holy life. So Jesus' vision, again, a new kingdom filled with and run by new people who are becoming more Christ-like because they are deeply in love with their Savior King. Most important thing I could say is that when you become a Christian, you don't fall in love with keeping rules. You fall in love with the king. And that love relationship with the king is what motivates you to become like the king. That's it. Now listen to me. If you missed that, what I just said, you've missed the entire point of Christianity because there's a version of Christianity which is false that says, hey, keep the rules and then the king will love you. No, the king's already loved you because he died in your place. When you get that message in your heart, then you love him back. And what is loving Jesus back? It always looks like obedience, okay? Every time you fall in love with someone, you change your behavior. You fall in love with your future wife. You start acting differently. Yes, amen, amen. You have a new baby. You start changing because you love that baby, relationships based on love always result in changed behavior. So you're not keeping a list of five rules to keep God off your back. You're just living life under the authority of your king because you're loving him back. Watch it in scripture. Here it goes. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we are living in him or living under his authority in the kingdom of God because we're in obedience. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. Now, Jesus' order is significant. Jesus is changing the world. He's not changing the world by putting certain kinds of parties in power in government. He's changing the world by putting his power in individual men and women. One life at a time. One by one by one until one day all the nations will have representation in this new kingdom. Jesus' order is not so much change the political structure as it is change the wiring of the human heart. 
which is what Whitfield preached, is the new birth, new nature, new heart. Ezekiel 36 says it this way, God promises, I'll give you a new heart and I'll put my spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow and obey my decrees, my commands, and you'll be careful to obey my regulations. Which is what Benjamin Franklin saw happening as Whitfield preached and people were filled with the Holy Spirit and they got a new nature and they enrolled in the school of becoming a student of Jesus and they lived that out as a colonist or as a citizen of America, but they were under the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So when we say at Rockbridge, we're kingdom seekers, that's what we mean. We're not about religion. Come an hour a week, see you next time. Nobody leave any different than you came. We're about teaching ourselves through the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God, what it means for Jesus to live through us, to learn how to live his life with our bank account, with our body, with our mind, with our job, with our class, with our sports team, whatever. That's the vision of Jesus. That's the vision of Rockbridge. So that's, we get Jesus' vision, and then we need to be Jesus' church. We need to be Jesus' church. Jesus' church is a group of people locally organized for a kingdom purpose. That's it. That's the church. Church is not our week. Church is not four walls in a building. Church is not a time. Church is not anything more than a group of people who are organized under the lordship of Jesus, committed to his mission in their time, in their place on the map. That's it. Now, I want us to talk about five mistakes that I think the church in America has made or is making, and, I'm not, and I think Rockbridge is somewhat guilty of these. We're guilty, some, more guilty of some than others. We're better at, than, than, than others, but I think we need to know what has changed, because here's, here's what I see. First, second, third century, Christianity has major impact on culture. 1700s, Christianity has major impact, 1800s, major impact on what's going on in America. The end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century, Christianity has very little influence on culture, very little influence uh, on our cities, on our communities, very little influence even in our own lives. It's not necessary. I mean, it, people are walking around saying they're a Christian and they don't look anything like Jesus. So somehow the church has shifted from what was being done when the church got started after the resurrection and as the church continued for 300 years when it was way more difficult to be a Christian. Hey, be a Christian, we'll feed you the lions. That's way more different than today. Be a Christian and we might make fun of you. I mean, come on. So let's talk about some mistakes. I'm going to list five. Five mistakes. First one is this. We have adopted a celebrity clergy culture and promoting a sitting mindset versus a sending one, and Jesus said to go. Too many people believe that I am the most spiritual person in the church. Too many people believe that my prayers count more than your prayers. Too many people believe that, I, that me and uh, you know, our worship guys, our campus pastors, uh, the elders, that we're the super spiritual people and everybody else just has to sit, watch me talk for 40 minutes and you go on your merry way. That's not Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. And, and so it's not about watching me and sitting and saying we're done. It's about all of us going and being sent. It's about you understanding this about Matt Evans. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. 
It's about all of us realizing what unites us is we all need a Savior King. And we've all said yes to King Jesus. And we're all in this together. And I've got a part, and you've got a part, and you've got a part, and you've got a part. And if you just said, well, I was saying that, no, I can't play a part. That's the voice of Satan. Take it obedient to Christ right now. Second mistake of the church. We have pursued decisions instead of making disciples who are taught to obey. I cannot tell you how troubled I am when someone says, I got saved when I was eight, but. And the but is they never lived differently. I'm not sure you got saved when you were eight. Because Jesus never said, get a bunch of people to attend an event, raise a hand, pray a prayer, and get baptized, and then say, I'll see you in heaven. Jesus said, get people to become a disciple, which means they enroll in a school to become like me, Jesus. That's it. That's Christianity. That's Christianity. That's Christ's vision. And, and the church, we went through revivalism where everybody was about it. Get people to, you know, come to church and pray a prayer and get people to raise a hand. And I'm all about making a commitment to Jesus. I'm all about getting baptized. That's all biblical. But if you make a decision without intending to become a disciple, you've basically said, hey, I'll say yes to Jesus, but I'm not going to live under his kingdom Well, then did you really say yes to Jesus because he's a king? So we want to emphasize the goal is not to say how many people attended. The goal is not to say how many people prayed a prayer. The goal is to make disciples who live differently in their time, in their place, so much that the emperor says, wow, look how they love people. So much that Ben Franklin, who wants nothing to do with Jesus, says, hey, we need more Christians so the republic can stand. We have pushed behavior change instead of relational change with God through Christ. Christians have been known for condemning everything. We're against Disney World. We're against homosexuals. We're against people who drink too much. We're against this. We're against that. I want everybody to hear me. Nobody's behavior changes. Unless God changes their heart through a relationship of love with Jesus Christ. Nobody's. So we've gotten the message backwards. We've preached, hey, get your act together and then become one of us. Jesus preaches, become one of me, mine, and I'll teach you to get your act together, so to speak. So what we're trying to say to people of all walks of life is come. Come, and we want you to have a relationship with God through Christ. And love-based relationships always result in behavioral change. And as you see Jesus more and more of your king, here's what happens. This doesn't happen necessarily instantaneously, but here's what happens. He's your king, yes. What was the question, Jesus? My answer is yes. You want me to do what with my money? Yes, because it's your money. You're my king. Jesus, how do you want me to spend my time? Yes. Jesus, my sexuality is yours. My sexuality, my body is your. Yes, you're my king. That's discipleship. My wallet is yours. How I use social media, yours. How I, the church is yours. That, that's what relational change with Jesus produces. 
We have not valued or pursued righteousness fueled by holy love. We have not talked about Jesus actually does expect behavior to change because of our love for him and the power that he puts inside of us called the Holy Spirit. So, so we haven't talked about it. Sometimes we get into this, oh, God will just forgive you. No, no, no. We want to be different. We're praying, God, help me defeat sin. God, help me to become more like Christ. God, I haven't arrived. I'm not there yet, but I'm straining forward to the prize and forgetting what's behind. So we're pursuing righteousness because we're so in love with Jesus. Another story out of the second century. A pagan actor, a pagan actor became a Christ follower. And he was convicted because acting in that time promoted idolatry and very immoral behavior. In fact, only men could be actors. So they would get men to do homosexual acts so they would become more feminine when they had to play a female character. That's true history. And so this pagan actor who becomes a Christian, he's convicted. He's like, I don't know if I can do my job anymore. And so he, 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 he starts saying, well, maybe I'll just form a school of acting and I'll enroll non-Christians in it and we'll try to redeem acting and try to do something different with acting. And so he writes and, invi- and seeks counsel from the church because he's so concerned about being righteous because he's so in love with Jesus. And the church decides the best thing for him to do is he just can't act anymore in that culture because it's such a, a perverted profession at that time. It's been redeemed over time in some ways, in some form or fashion. And, and, and then the church said this, listen, since that's the way he made his living, the, the answer from the head of the church says, we've now got to support him financially until he can find a new profession. Imagine if that was our commitment to righteousness. Because we're so in love with Jesus that we seek out godly counsel when faced with career challenges, when we face with, is this business thing equal integrity or ethical or not? And it's not because God's holding hell over us. It's because we've fallen in love with him as our Savior King. And the fifth and final mistake of the church is this. We've left the available power of the Holy Spirit untapped. I want us to meditate on something. You may not believe a word I'm saying, but what if God put himself inside of you? I mean, you've watched Superman. It's like, oh, what if I could fly? New Spider-Man comes out next week. What if I had spidey powers? And you've all imagined it. Don't admit you haven't. Just, you've been there. You've thought, oh, what if I could fly? What if I were invisible? What if the power of God took up residence in you? The presence of God took up residence in you. And what I'm telling us today is this, based on the authority of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his word to us in his scripture, God puts himself inside of Christians. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we walk around like we don't have any power. Or we walk around like, oh, only the preacher has power. Oh. No, God didn't show favoritism. God gives his Holy Spirit to those who give him the steering wheel of his life and say, God, I want to learn how to love you back. So the church, Christians, we've been blessed. Look, all praise to God, the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. We have, people who've been blessed have a responsibility. Genesis 12, God says to Moses, or excuse me, to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So when God gives every spiritual blessing to his people, his church, when God blesses someone, he blesses them to be a blessing. So the third thing I challenge us all to do is to give the blessing. Give what we've received, church. We've received the Holy Spirit. We've received new life, new heart, new nature in Christ. That's what they gave in the first century. They gave that kind of love to people that hated them, to people that wanted to kill them, to people that wanted to persecute them. That's what they gave first through third century. That's what the people who were born again through Whitfield's sermons began living out on display that so enthralled Benjamin Franklin, even though he's like, I don't get Jesus, but I get there's new life there. They gave the blessing. And so I want us to begin thinking about something, praying about something as a church. I want everybody to think about who, do you, who, who, who you need to be for. Who in your circle needs you to bless them the way God has blessed you? Who do you know that doesn't know about Jesus? Who do you know that's not enrolled in the school of discipleship of Christ? Who, who's God maybe put in your life, in your world, in your circle of blessing that he wants to bless through you with good news of Jesus and the love of God? Just go ahead and think about it. Write a name down. Begin praying. We'll talk more about it. One is all to be familiar with what hope is at Rockbridge. Hope is simply this. I'm not even going to go through what H-O-P-E stands for. Hope is us loving our community back as Jesus has loved us. Hope is us being for the hurting, for the impoverished, for the child, for, for anybody who needs the love of Christ. And that, that's how we go demonstrate and do good deeds. Hope is how we hope the community will look at Rockbridge and say, I'm not sure about the Bible, I'm not sure about Jesus, but I'm sure those people are, are good for our city. I'm sure those people love us. I want us to pray that God would begin to do something more powerful and more profound in us and through us to impact the world and to raise the esteem of Jesus Christ. I want us to begin to save the date as we look forward to the weekend of August 8th. That's Thursday and August 11th. A lot of things are happening. The Cleveland Church officially becomes Rockbridge Cleveland. Calhoun moves in its new campus. Every campus is going to begin focusing on what we will call a fresh start. And we all know people, our who, who need a fresh start. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is here. And we're going to challenge ourselves to invite and build relationships and bring some of those people with us on that weekend. Just save the date. Think about Acts 4. Think about if this were said of us. So those who were scattered because of persecution went on their way preaching the word. They were going and making disciples. Philip went down to a city in Samaria, proclaimed the Messiah to them. The crowds were all paying attention to what Philip said as they listened and saw the signs he was performing. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. What if, what if, in the six cities that our God has sovereignly placed us in, Rockbridge, what if the people in that city had great joy because of what the Lord Jesus Christ did through us? I would submit to you that kind of behavior, that kind of living is way more important than who sits in the White House for the next four years. And then we're going to turn in the fall and we're going, to, we're going to launch some new small groups. We're going to challenge everybody at Rockbridge to get in a small group for at least six weeks. And our whole goal is that God would increase our personal and corporate Christ-likeness, that we would begin to look more like Jesus. 
And we're going to ask all of our small groups, 100% of our small groups, to go through the same study together. I will preach solely through one of the Gospels and Jesus' ministry for a period of time. And we're just going to look at how Jesus did life and say, Jesus, if that's how you did it, teach us to do the same in our lives, homes, marriages, careers, neighborhoods, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I want to end with a prayer. This is a prayer that a missionary prayed. It's written by Sir Francis Drake. Here's my prayer for us. Moving forward. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves. When our dreams have come true because we dream too little. When we arrive safely because we have sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord. Let's pray. God, I want to pray that we're affected today. Not complacent, not apathetic, but we're affected today by your vision, by your will for your people, for your church. God, that we want to be a blessing because we've been blessed. God, that we want to glorify your name in our cities, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our jobs. God, that we want to be disturbed by your truth and by your mission and by your calling and by your purpose and by your power and by your life in us. So Jesus, we just thank you for blessing us. We thank you for blessing America. And we pray, God, that we would live to be a blessing. Pray, God, that we would live as students, disciples of your son, Jesus. We pray, God, that you would do something through us that the world cannot explain unless we use you, Jesus, as our explanation. So disturb us, Lord. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.